0: Hey folks, you know, there's only two things in this world that scare me. One is prepubescent gym rats warming up on my project in front of me. You know, pad sniffers, smell like Skittles, small hands. And the other thing that scares me, lawyers. But Dan Markoff is here to help. Climber, lawyer, a NormaCast fan, and partner at Markov. Dan has set up an email hotline to field your inquiries about any type of lawyer you might need. Email climbinglawyer at gmail.com with inquiries. Dan knows this shit scares you too. All right, on to the show. We gotta
1: get Listen, on. uh, uh where
0: you playing, Ted?
2: You, you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the normal dome whatever it is it's terrific
0: it's oh yeah big place that's a big place you sold oh, that i'll say. We really out. should
1: look you better get up there before you panic so those hands are loose you're very good i have really enjoyed having with you we'll make i don't think so but we shall continue with style
0: This episode is also brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, Maxim Ropes, and as usual, our friends at Defiant Bean Roasters. Go to defiantbean.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee. All right, let's see if I can get this thing started again.
2: Hello and welcome to The Normal Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is July 21st, 2013, and it is about 10.15 Mountain Standard Time. This is episode number 39, a conversation with Henry Barber, the man, the myth, the legend. Yes, that sounds cliche, but it in fact does apply to this guy. Henry and I hooked up at the International Climbers Fest last weekend up in Lander, and Before we get to that, I did want to thank the organizers of that event because, once again, it was awesome. We had a hell of a time up there. I want to particularly thank Brian Fable, the director, who helped hook me up with Henry, as well as some other guests. And also to Jill Hunter at the Lander Bar. The Lander Bar, definitely contender for one of the great climber bars of the world, if not the greatest. If not the greatest. I'd like to hear... From someone who has an idea of a better, more welcoming, more fun, more kick ass climbing bar than the Lander Bar. If you got an idea, let me know about that. I also want to give a shout out to the many listeners that I met up there. Um, It is definitely my people, it's an event populated by my people, the Road Dogs. The climbers from afar coming out to check out Lander. Anyway, met a lot of great folks that listen to the show. Some people recognize the mobile studio, which was there, which limped back to Carbondale just barely while one of the axle bearings was blowing out, but I got it taken care of. Well, I took care of it myself here in the driveway, redneck style with a sledgehammer. Anyway, but yeah, thanks for uh, saying hi while we were up there. I enjoyed all the conversations I had. With everybody over the weekend and um, I look forward to next year. And if you guys haven't been to this thing, seriously, it's too much fun. Legendary party every time. Okay, speaking of festivals, I'm going to do a little advertising for myself. I was recently at another climbing festival. This one was a little more tame, shall we say. Unfortunately, it was a little more tame. And one of the things I noticed was that, you know, it was the standard... Slideshow by celebrity guest. I will not name such celebrity guest, but, you know, little slideshow, show, done it before, he'll do it again, blah, 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 some slides, a few clips from the internet that we've all seen before. I thank you and a good night and the guy disappears. Okay, here's my proposal. If you are out there planning a climbing event in the next year, or you are close to someone who's planning a climbing event, give me a shout. I will come to your climbing event. We will do a live EnormaCast from your event with whoever you give me, okay? It will be spontaneous. It will be fun. It will be interesting. The guests won't know it's coming. It won't sound like he or she's repeated it 30 times over the last year. I will come to your town and do a live EnormaCast at your climbing event. I'll probably do it for beer, all right? It's that simple. So give me a shout. If you know anybody putting something together and you want something different at your event, Then the blah, 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 blah slideshow. You can get in touch with me at chris at enormacast.com or go over to enormacast.com where hopefully soon, if I get around to it, I'll put up a page detailing the experience. Go back and listen to episode 34. That's what I'm talking about. Laughs, drama, excitement, not unlike the EnormaCast itself. All right, let's get on to the interview. Mr. Henry Barber. I don't think I have to tell you too much about this guy other than that during the 70s, he was a contender for the best climber in the world. You know, There's arguments to be made for a few other people, but he is definitely in the mix when you're talking about who is kicking more ass on the free climbing frontier than Henry Barber. Not too many people. He was on the cusp of a clean climbing revolution as well as a free climbing revolution. And he became sort of the prototype dirtbag world traveler. We talk about all that. We talk about his Australian trip where he blew the lid off the grades and is still talked about today. And we get a bunch of wisdom from the man, a guy who's been doing it for four plus decades. All right, let's get to it. A conversation with Mr. Henry Barber. Oh, and a quick note on the recording. This was done in the Coulter Loft upstairs at the Lander Bar. A little bit of background noise. Nothing you haven't come to be used to from the uh, normal cast, some Harleys going by there in Lander, some birds tweeting in the morning. So yeah, it'll feel just like you were there, hung over with me and Henry. All right, let's get to it. I'm sitting here with Henry Barber in the Coulter Loft in Lander, Wyoming, the site of a grand party last night. Our, both of us are, are feeling this morning still, I think. You're sitting. I'm lying. <laughs> lying. Double entendre right yes, there. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's good. Don't believe a word you hear in the next hour. <laughs> um, I would actually, you know, I'm not sure all my listeners or all the listeners are going to do a little happy dance at the sound of of hot Henry Barber with the way I do. Um, So I'd like to kind of start by maybe just framing a little bit of when you started climbing, what your place is in the beginning, kinda like you did last night in that presentation. You started climbing in 1968, is that what I remember? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, in Aspen. In Aspen, Colorado? Yeah, Yeah, just up the road. At Ashcrofters. Ashcrofters? Ashcrofters? Yeah, you know where um, the little village of
1: Ashcroft is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I started climbing at Ashcroft and then um, the school that I was at there moved to Telluride. So I spent all my summers <clears throat> at um, Skyline Ranch, the Telluride Mountaineering School, mm-hmm. and then in uh, I'm from New England, so when I went back east in the fall, I was climbing with the Appalachian Mountain Club. Right. So that's how I started, just in Colorado. Uh-huh. So I had my second
2: home.
0: Nice. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned last night had a very humble beginning. Yeah. I saw the pictures, a little top rope on the Ashcroft area. Yep, very humble. That yeah, was, that's Lincoln that's Lincoln Creek Campground. Mm-hmm. That little you know where that finger crack is there?
1: Mm-hmm. It's just those little buttresses up to the left of
2: it. Yeah, I'm just they still use them for guiding up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's cool. You said forty five years of climbing in thirty five countries yesterday uh, last night. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've climbed um Probably, I think I've climbed in actually 37 or so, but you have to be conservative. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them might not be there anymore. Um, (laughs) They aren't. Yeah. In fact, they aren't. Yeah. There's a few that aren't. Um, You know, Hong Kong's now part of China. Right. And uh, East Germany's part of Germany. Sure. And um,
2: some of the lines have gotten redrawn elsewhere, so. Right on. yeah. Yeah. I'd actually like to get to that Dresden period, too. So, And how old are you now? 60, 60 years old, 45 years, 60 years old. Are you still climbing? Yeah. Yep. I, uh, <clears throat> if I can, um,
1: if I can, uh, get out quite a bit, then I'll take advantage of, of my travels, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, if I get out and climb a bit this fall, then, you know, I might, I might get in a hundred days in the year. Uh huh. um, I'll end up climbing, you know, in four or five countries, okay. probably by the end of the year. So, yeah, I, I get out as much as possible. I've already climbed in Oklahoma and Texas and Art, you know, uh, uh, Arizona and New Hampshire and, you know, so I'll I'll get I'll get around to quite a few places this year. Awesome, yeah. Well, it still drives me. I can't, you know. The thing is, I can't. The thing that drives me is I can't really climb the same place. Uh-huh. It just doesn't interest me, right? And in my own town, I very rarely do climbs. That you know, my favorite climbs, I very rarely do them, mm-hmm. and I do them with guests. I do them with people visiting. Sure, but you know, I have I have a my climbing partner there, Chris Noonan. You know, he'll climb one of our favorite routes maybe ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty times a year, and I have climbed it probably twelve, fifteen, twenty times in my life. Mm-hmm. So it just doesn't intrigue me so we're we're going to a lot of new crags that are being developed and um we're not putting up new routes but we're you know we're hiking further driving an extra half an hour to an area and you know i might do 20 30 climbs in my own area that i've never done before it's cool just because you've sort of like saved them well, because they're new, oh, new new, new, new okay. areas yeah. that are coming on board, uh-huh. but um, yeah, it's just nice to not do the same thing, uh-huh. the same dog and pony show. I've never, you know, I've never been a runner or a you know workout enthusiast or anything. I it just it bores the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. So, um, if I get on the, I kind of have to get on a little bit of a roll, and and I wish I'd been, you know, I wish here I'd. Um, had a couple extra
2: days because right. I brought my gear and gone climbing, and the temperatures are perfect. Yeah, you know, we've yeah. had a couple good days with the oh with the God. with the shade oh, the, or with the uh, overcast. So oh yeah, fantastic. So yeah, these things tend to be uh, kind of a whirlwind, especially when you're here, sort of as yeah. a speaker and all that sort of thing, and have to make the scene. I appreciate you coming and sitting down with me for sure. So when I was looking at or listening to you, and it kind of occurred to me that maybe. We have this sort of archetype in climbing nowadays, especially like that You, it's just part of what you do is travel, mm-hmm. you know, to climb. And you travel, a lot of people do travel a ton internationally, myself included, like that's really important to me as well. But it's almost like you You kind of seem like the first guy to like just start hitting these countries and year after year doing these different, different areas. It's yeah. like you, you were the prototype for this traveling climber. Is that... Accurate to say that you think? I think so. I mean I think that I think that the um
1: what happened is is that in America we had, you know, Royal Robinson, and Heming and Harlan and, and Cor, and they went to the Eiger, and to the Drew and, and the classic French Alps mm-hmm. type thing, you know, dolomites. Um and then you had a lot of the climbers from the Pacific Northwest and the Northeast go to the Himalaya, you know, and, and open up new routes in Pakistan or Nepal, um, maybe maybe Peru, but that was it. Mm-hmm. And the, sort of the greater ranges, yeah, as, as yeah. Ivan put it. Yeah, and I just had this... Um, I, I didn't really want to do that kind of climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, really, it, it really wasn't hard enough on mm-hmm. the one hand, mm-hmm. and on the other hand there was really only a couple people that um, I could climb with. There was a guy locally, John Bouchard, who I was married to a French woman, and he, you know he did some really fantastic things in the French Alps. But it didn't really interest me to go and sit in bad weather. I wanted to climb every day. Right. And that's how I got good. That's how right. I got fit. That's how um, I developed. And so I, I started going to places that people wouldn't think to really visit to climb. Mm-hmm. People did go to England, um, but people really weren't thinking about, you know. Trying to go to Monaco or go right. to Austria or something like that to climb from America, uh-huh. and and then as soon as I got enough under my belt, um, you know, then it was Kenya and it was Norway and it was places where I know you know people wouldn't speak the language. I couldn't mm-hmm. speak the language, and got it just got more and more interesting. It was another dynamic. So the com- you know comfortability was about culture as opposed to sitting out crappy weather Mm -hmm. and and then you know maximizing maximizing your um, your trip right really was about psych and about Mm -hmm. endurance and not about money or um,
2: ability right anything like that so it's it's interesting the last presenter last night Tommy was talking about you know this finding this place to sort of push through these (laughs) physical things and you know I don't know if you had such a a traumatic experience to learn that, but it, it, it made me think of the way that you, you know, more than any other pe- people around you, it seemed like you were just going and going and going, and yeah. you know, your, your trip to Australia, you said you kind 41 days out of 42, yeah, and that must have blown people's mind there, too, yeah. like, who is yeah. this guy, like the Energizer Bunny, you know, yeah. before that existed, too? You know, I was really driven, I didn't talk about it last night, but when I was a
1: kid, I, um, I really loved baseball, and... And I played all the positions except catcher and um, i I played baseball nonstop, you know this slept with my baseball glove and and i I was on two teams ten miles apart, and I used to ride my one speed three times a week, either to Wellesley from Sherburne or my parents would drop me off and I'd ride my bike home. Mm-hmm. so I always had this drive. I had 3 jobs when I was mm-hmm. in junior high, you know, 3 jobs when I was in high school. And so I was always going. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was the kid that was, you know, walking down the street and asking my neighbors for orange juice canisters so that I could go in their backyard and steal their berries from them and then bring them back and sell them.
0: All right.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, I was one of these kids. And so I was always looking for the next, the next thing. Mm-hmm. And when I got into climbing, I think I was bullied in high school, and um, I, I got hassled by a teacher, and I quit. I just quit team sports. Never, never been into them since. Mm-hmm. And and that's really a problem that I had with expedition climbing too. Okay. Is not not wanting to be a part of a team. Um, you know, an alpine team of two or three is fine, but nothing bigger. And um, when I left that, I think I played. I think I played catch up you know I, I think I found this thing I couldn't do a pull up I had you know arms is about as big as a you know large dowel <laughs> <laughs> you know and um so I started to develop and when I developed I was de- everything was developing my mind was developing my coordination which I never had in baseball and my physique and everything and I, you know we people use the word blossoming but I was like blossoming exponentially mm-hmm. in so many ways and uh you know, I was, a, I was one of these kids that never got sick in school, and I was never tardy, and, and one day the, the, um, I went in, the, the bus was late to school, and I just said, "You know, uh, I'm going to go in and get, get the tardy off my record, and they wouldn't take it off my record, and they never got on the bus again. I hitchhiked every day for the next year and a half, and the bus driver used to, you know stop. Mm-hmm. She she a little monkey from Vietnam or something brought from Vietnam, and he'd, she'd sit on the handle and she said, "Can I take you to school today?" And I said, "No, nope. no, nope, never did it again. I had that single-mindedness, you know, I just I was so frustrated that, that somebody wouldn't cut me a break on being tardy mm-hmm. when the bus was late. Not me, the bus was late. So I kind of had that I, I really had that that attitude and I harnessed it wasn't neg- negative toward my parents and toward disrespectful toward teachers I was just that attitude is like you know you're not going to tell me I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win whatever mm-hmm. we're, at, we're at here mm-hmm. and um, so when it came to climbing I I just turned all that energy into you know 365 days a year if I could have climbed I climbed as much as 350 55 days a year but if I could have climbed those extra 10 days mm-hmm. I would have right <laughs> that's I incredible I would have uh-huh. you know and it usually was it usually was plane flights or something I used to climb I used to climb at Harrison's Rocks south of London mm-hmm. get on a plane into Boston and climb at the Quincy Quarries in the afternoon same day awesome I mean that was like <laughs> they'd show up and that was one of the things that was really one of the things that people people used to say is they used to say well, he can't do... He couldn't have. He couldn't have. He was just there. Right. And I said, Yeah, he was just there, but he was here, too.
2: Right. <laughs> was there like, was, like, more than one of you. <laughs> there
0: right was, around. like, more
1: than one of you. It was like,
2: Oh, it was funny as hell. You yeah, know, well, was, in this day and age, you'd, yeah, there'd be some internet, internet uh, forum that would be calling you a liar, probably, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they do so, anyway. Yeah, they, they do anyway. They, they. Um, and, that, and that's really what happened in Australia.
1: It, it, uh, there was a airways... Strike between ANSET and TAA, mm-hmm. and so the planes weren't flying. And um, I got a student, I got student standby tickets, so I flew everywhere, all over the country, for like twenty-two bucks, twenty-five right. bucks, thirty-two bucks, twenty-seven bucks, and we would just um, calling around. And one day I'd be in Queensland and in Brisbane, and you go out to Frog, and then have to come back the afternoon to see if i could get on the flight of course Mm -hmm. the flights weren't flying so i go to kangaroo point next day go out to frog buttress again come back trying to do it again go back to kangaroo point next day do it again and come back and all of a sudden i was on the plane and to canberra gone gone right that was it right whatever i didn't do wasn't going to get done (laughs) and then i
2: go to the next place but i mean you you can see how perhaps these legends you know would occur if someone's like comes in and then all of a sudden he's just like tips his hat jumps on the plane and zooms into the sky leaving the locals like
0: what just happened yeah (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) I went to do this uh, when I when I was did that
1: showed you that picture of that uh, Korea peak in in Kyrgyzstan I was the leader of this American climbing team in the Soviet Union and that's the Lodiya Shatayev was the leader of the Russian team and I said you know then on this this Corona Peak and I didn't want to climb it because there were, you know, it's just too many people and the, the Russian way was this ball bogged down and I just I just wrapped off about three pitches up and said I got to go back and I sat in base camp and the weather was gorgeous and it was killing me mm-hmm. and so I went over to Belogaya and I said um, is it okay if I do that that Korea peak there and he said yeah and I says who are you going to go with and I said I'm going to go by myself. He just, he just went, well, we're going climbing the, the day after tomorrow. And I said, I know, that's okay. And he said, well, that's going to take you four days. And I said, Chitiri is four. And I said, no, Chitiri horas, hours, you know, four hours. All right. And uh, he said, no. And we got the interpreter over there, and um, they they didn't believe me. So I left at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I could see when I got across the glacier, I could see all the lights in camp, and they're all looking at me my little headlamp, you mm-hmm. know, going up this 3,000-foot wall, you know, in the dark. And uh, they, they couldn't believe it. They could not believe it. So I got to the top in, in uh, just under four hours and walked off the backside. And that's a whole other story, because I had a Russian girlfriend, and she got interrogated by the KGB about me going off the back side of the snail. Where you were headed, wondering where you were going. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, I made it back down to camp, and when I went to the mess hall, they freaked out. They just, I mean, all of the, they just all like dropped their, you know, silverware, and they rushed me and threw me up in the air and carried me around camp because I had completely broken the mold for you know Soviet climbing, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they weren't you, you weren't supposed to solo, and you had to do these routes in a certain order and everything else. And I was like a ghost that had appeared from this remote valley, right. coming back into camp. You know, so it was it was like that pretty much everywhere I went. And you know, when I, went, I remember when I did this Steck I you know I showed up at, at um Dagnan's at like nine thirty in the morning and um, looking for a climbing partner because that's why I did it I mean I didn't have anybody to climb with and uh, and uh, he said well um, what are you looking to do and I said I'm just looking to go do something in the cookie or whatever and, and I said, I already got my climbs in for the day so I'll be happy to do you know five sevens or five nines or 10 a or I don't know it doesn't matter to me He said what do you mean you already got climbing for the day <laughs> I said, well I just did, I just got a I just got a route in across the valley you know they're like trying to figure out what it is. It was, and Steve once knew what it was. Cause right. he, he said he would come look for me if I didn't,
2: didn't, turn it. Out. Yeah, yeah. didn't
1: turn out. So it's just like that all the time. I mean, usually I got my climbing in by eight o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. So the rest of the day was a bonus. Right, awesome. <laughs> I never, you know, I didn't think of like a chaining, and chaining climbs. I did, uh, did Nabisco Wall, one day um, with a friend of mine. Chip, and then I went and did uh, New Dimensions with Diana Hunter. And when, when we got done, I went down and sold midterm. She waited for me, and then went back up and knocked off a few, you know, boulders and stuff. And it was just—I mean, I just wanted to climb. I mean, to me, that's just like doing a ten-pitch route, right? Right, right. But they're all like—it's all about enchainment and you know, speed climbing and everything else. No, I said it's just like doing a new long route. Right. You know, that's what to me it was. Right. So I just uh I just had a different view and I just couldn't stop. Right. I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop no matter where I was. I could not stop.
2: Well speaking of that different view, you, you mentioned again last night we were uh in, in your presentation that one of the most important things is making your own path. Right. And and uh you know shirking convention. And I think you know looking at your career and listening to you you were on this cusp of, you said clean climbing came in um, not long after you started and when you kind of were were getting uh, to where you were climbing all the time and then also it seems like you mentioned how the old climbers older than you had gone to some of these great peaks and you decided to start traveling for cragging but in a lot of ways that was also this era where cragging you know climbing shorter climbs one two three pitches whatever Became something in and of itself rather than this, this practicing for the greater ranges right, right. and again, you were on this this moment where you kind of helped usher that in as well, this idea of like climbing a really difficult short climb being it, it, it ends to itself rather right, than right. a training for something bigger, so it seems like you just had a, a, a moment where you really could bust down some barriers and open some new ways yeah, but you know I was um I wasn't
1: visionary um, in any way. I I was just really lucky that I came along at the right time, Mm -hmm. you know? Because I wasn't really... I was never really a small climber. And I I got to be a very good climber, but I was never less than 167, 172, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I was so lucky that I was the first. And um, I was everywhere. I think that you know because i was everywhere i met everyone and i took them up on their offer if they mm-hmm. said you know you know visit me in such and such a place 6 months later i was on the plane sure you know and it was a time when you know i was probably one of the top couple of climbers in the world mm-hmm. and so everybody wanted to be with me or see me or put me on their test pieces or mm-hmm. try to try to um sandbag me or whatever and and I just rose to the challenge and just went everywhere and mm-hmm. did it all. But you know, I was living on uh nine hundred thousand, twelve hundred bucks a year. Right. I went to Australia with eight hundred bucks and I came home with six hundred and I gave lectures. <laughs> I was there for six weeks. My ticket cost eight hundred and thirty bucks. I went with eight hundred dollars and I came back with six hundred. I mean you can't do that. My first day in Australia, I went back five years ago to visit my old girlfriend there and um, and go climb and and play golf and do stuff and my first day i spent four hundred dollars right <laughs> you spent that much here this weekend up <laughs> you know. here in lander wyoming <laughs> yeah yeah so so it's about economics right. it's about opportunity mm-hmm. it's about having you know hosts i mean you know the, the top climbers today they're gonna have they'd have a chris charman had 500 people staying at his house right he should just open a hotel right if he right. wants in spain mm-hmm. but um, so the, the welcome mat's kind of gone, and it's expensive, mm-hmm. and um, it's not as easy to do a lot of first ascents. You know, density-wise, mm-hmm. I might have put mm-hmm. up six, seven, eight, nine, ten new routes on a cliff, mm-hmm. and you know, everywhere I went, I, I got to do that. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the needles of South Dakota, or the Pishastine Pinnacles in Washington, or Looking Glass in North Carolina, or whatever. So. When you go around, you, you kind of connect with a bunch of Henry Barber roots. Right. And it's kind of cool. But it'd be hard to do that today.
0: Yeah, for it'd sure. It'd be really
1: hard to do that. Right. So I was lucky. I was really lucky I came along at the time. But, but you know what? You have to seize the moment. You've got to seize the moment. And, and I've learned that the biggest thing geopolitically. You know, I've never climbed in Peru and I, got, I, I was on a trip there and didn't end up going and, and then you know the shining path and the terrorism there and all that and now look what's happening in Pakistan and that's really mm-hmm. a bummer and um, so geo- geopolitically you can get shut down mm-hmm. and a lot of different ways that you might get shut down and if you don't go to a sport climbing crag or a specific area at the right time in, in its um, arc of sure. development you today you could cl- put up a couple of five twelves and tomorrow they're at there at five fourteen a and you're shut down you're mm. not you're not going to go make put up the new the next new classic there sure. sure, so I was just lucky that I just went everywhere and i didn't say no to anything uh-huh, nothing, so I climbed on some crappy rock and went to some crappy places but it's in, it's less than two percent mm-hmm. you know everything was pretty spectacular mm-hmm. and uh but I also didn't mind climbing slabs and Grooves and off width and thin fingers and off fingers, you know, inch and mm-hmm. a quarter, which I hate. It's only really the only thing I really hate is that one size. And <laughs> every limestone, sandstone, granite, it didn't sure, matter, sure. and it didn't matter who I climbed with, and it didn't matter how hard I climbed, because I love this. I love the history, so mm-hmm. I always wanted to climb the classic roots. Mm-hmm. and that just put me in touch with more people. You know, because people, people would love to go out and do 5.8 or 5.9 and I just want to do the top 10 routes on the crack. I don't sure. care if they're... One of my favorite routes is Little Face at, at Mohonk in the Shuangkong. It's 5.3, you know? So I don't really care. I just mm-hmm. want to climb, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I just, I don't care. I'll even go down climb them. doesn't right. matter, which, you know, which is just good practice, but yeah. just be in that, you know, be on that arete, be on that overhanging wall alone. I don't care if it's 5.4 five or 5.10. Mm-hmm. Who cares? But I just was hungry, mm-hmm. and I was lucky. I was just in the right place at the right time every day.
2: Every day. For about eight or nine years. In the 70s. In the 70s, yeah. So <laughs> it was like, can we talk a little bit about the Australia trip? Yeah, Because yeah. I have a personal connection to that. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, just to frame it for listeners, that it was 1975, correct? Yeah. Um, you decided on, uh, sounds like a little bit of a whim, but you can explain that in a sec. To go to Australia, this place you knew nothing about, but it, obviously someone mentioned some stuff to you. What ha- ended up happening, as we were talking about, is you did this whirlwind trip, uh, and kind of blew the doors off of what their highest grades were at the time, um, and specific, and particularly in Arapiles.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I went to Arapiles. I think it was in, I see the '94, '95, so quite a long time ago as well for me. But I was a burgeoning 5'11 climber. I was a gear climber. I was, I had. You know some ethics in that, and about always on-sighting. And if I fell, like I wasn't quite strict enough to never come back, but I was definitely done for the day on that right. route until I like regrouped. I noticed that all the classics, most of the classics in that grade, were Henry Barber roots Okay, yeah. so I was going to do all the Henry Barber roots And um, I can't. I was try- sitting this morning trying to think of them all. You seem to have an incredible memory, so you probably know them all. But I don't know what is there. In that like five eleven range, like yeah. twelve or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, t- to
1: probably more like ten. Yeah, because I did things like Good, Bad, and the Ugly, which are five ten, and right.
2: But there's there was a good, good little grouping. And the interesting thing is that this was a time and punks in the gym had been put up. Um, Lord of the Rings, like really hard climbs had been put up, and there were guys that are climbing them. But for some reason, the kid from Colorado, bumbling around, trying to do the Henry Barber routes, like. That was something that caught everybody's imagination to the point of like you know you know how's it going mate you know have you done this one yet have you done that one yet and then, as we know, a lot of those climbs are in gullies, and it's quite a good spectator area because yeah, yeah. people can get right up close on the other side of the gully and and so it became this thing where and a lot of times they would come and people would be like you know he's going up to do squeak easy you know and so Sure enough, there'd be a good crowd of 10 people down there because part of the reason was because since I was just like bumbling into 5.11, it was pretty entertaining to watch me try to climb these things, you know, like flip kicking gear out with my feet and, you know, dropping things and like desperately, you know, scumming up these roots. So it became sort of a, of a like fun thing to go do is to watch this kid from Colorado try to, try to make his goal. But I failed on, uh, I got through some of the classics, I mean Kachun, beautiful, yeah. taste of honey, one of the great roots of the world, in my opinion, more fun than the famous Kachun, maybe yeah. doesn't photograph as well, but awesome, Squeaky, easy, amazing, what well, was it, Grim Reaper, you know, yeah. I ended up getting stuck in Kama Sutra. Um, it's with... always good to get stuck <laughs> in Kama Sutra. <laughs> Yeah, I'm probably not the first one. (laughs) Yes, and that one's got that great... You just want to make sure your partner's a really cute girl when you get stuck in (laughs) Sutra. What was the guidebook said? The Root of a Thousand thousand Positions, all of them strenuous? Yeah, yeah. And that one's got the great platform there below it for people to gather around. They were there, they were psyched. I did like 16 sit-ups to try to get up into the slot and then just finally... You know turned into a noodle and fell down onto the rope and i don't know if they booed in my memory they booed but i think they just all slithered away and left me hanging <laughs> there so but anyway I, so that's my connection i didn't do red baron i was saving it for the end so i wouldn't have to do it if i didn't want to because um, it's a little run out apparently i'll never know probably yeah you don't but, need to it's not 511 either i don't think okay maybe 10 10 plus all right, right. if i ever go back i'll hit it oh, I, <laughs> For the podcast audience, I just got a wink. So, um, anyway, I just wanted to, to share that with you because, like I said, you—you you, this was in the '90s. People still had this reverence for what you had done there. Yeah. Um, I think to this day, you know, oh yeah, it, and you're you. still still there. And like, like you said, with this, you know, showing up for five days and getting on a plane and jetting away all of a sudden, I can see why you you, you created this legend down there. But can you, you know, tell us a little bit about that trip and, and getting into it and. Well, I'll tell you about Kachung, that was,
1: oh, yeah. I, I mean, um, about Kama Sutra, yeah, that yeah. was funny Um 'cause because my, my mates um, really couldn't climb these roots, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, there was like five or six of them, um, you know, Mr. Boobs, and Smarty, and Lassie, and Humzu, and they all have nicknames, you uh-huh. know? and they were all <laughs> they were all running around, and so who's up? Humzu, are you up for this? Lassie, are you gonna do it? <laughs> and then they'd flip a coin to see who was gonna get punished, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> but
2: um, did you did you have wide gear on Kama Sutra? Um, I actually I, I didn't, I'm yeah. sure. Because I'm pretty sure I used a, there was like a little nut in the back of it was yeah. the because I remember I remember leaving it. Yeah. Because I bailed. Yeah. I remember leaving a nut somewhere and again, like at that point in my career, like that was sacrilegious as well. Like I had, yeah. not only had I failed, but I had somehow defiled your roots, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, it's good to be defiled when
1: you're on Kama Sutras. It's, I think it's, it goes without saying, right? Yeah. So anyway, we were up, it's way up, you know, it's like 400 feet up, mm-hmm. you know, up on the crag where you start on this ramp you're talking about. And so there was, uh, four or five of us up there and... You, um, I had all small gear. I, I only, I only have a very, very small rack. I always travel with a very small rack. So, you kind of traverse leftwards to get into the mm-hmm. wide crack. Yes. And I got a couple moves. You know, you go up the crack, and then there's a little roof, and then you go up the crack again. There's a, then a big roof. And I got up, traversed over to the crack, got up the crack, went up to the little roof, which is a cruxy little section. And I said. Ray's not gonna do this. This is not gonna happen. And uh, so I kicked out a piece of gear and, and kept going. And <laughs> we had 150 foot ropes back mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is I got to the top and I'd run out of rope, and I was like 10 feet from the end. And the top of Kama Sutra is this flat, it's flat, and there are these little teeny cracks for like three and four stoppers. And mm-hmm. I'd use most of my small stoppers at, and on the head wall above the, the crux section. And anyway, I, he starts climbing. And I get just just on the top and get my butt on the top of this thing and reach back, put a uh, stopper in, clip it to my waist, to my swami belt, and he falls off. The traverse move <laughs> getting it. Of course, the ramp is sloping, mm-hmm. so it's like it slopes down at probably a 10 or 15 degree angle. And they're all horrified because Ray, we've been screaming back and forth. I haven't even really got him on belay yet, mm-hmm. fortunately. So it's, I'm totally taught to the, the gear, and he's hanging in midair, and now he's like 25 feet off the ground. Sure. So, so I unclip. And I down-climb with him. My last piece of gear is like 30, 40 feet below me, just above the roof.
2: All right, so hold on, hold on. Hold on. So you, you had that stopper. You unclip from the stopper. And he's on my waist. So now. you're on
1: your waist. He's on, his, he's on my waist, and I'm down-climbing <laughs> the roof with him getting lower. And I can't go. I get down about 12 or 15 feet, and I can't get any lower. So John Smart goes down the ramp, they put him on belay, and then, I think it was Humzu, gets on John Smart's shoulders, they put him on belay. And then, I just go down, a couple more moves, and we get Ray onto Humzu's shoulders on top of John Smart's shoulders, both belayed on this ramp, 400 Mm -hmm. feet off the ground. (laughs) And Ray unties. And now Ray's safe, right? But they got to clip him into Hamzoo, so they got—they're all protected. But now I'm—you're off, off bullet.
2: I'm off belay. right?
0: <laughs> so this—you <laughs>
2: so obviously so lived. Through so the
1: I solo So I soloed back to the top, you know, and fixed a rope, and then I had to get along the rope, right? To clean it all, you know. But I only had to clean a couple pieces of gear.
0: So
2: uh-huh. it was like, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that big. Right? It wasn't that bad. And was there like a oh, my was... my attempt? Was there a, a great spectation going on to this whole operation? Oh yeah, there was. Well, as Kim, my girlfriend, and
1: Humzu and Smarty and boobs and and uh, Lassie and I don't remember if there was anybody else there, but uh, there was because I know we got really I got really good pictures of it. Sure, a really really good pictures. Awesome. I can show them, I can show them to you when we're done. Yeah, under that'd my be computer. Great. <laughs> Yeah, that was just one, and then you know the one I showed last night, that thunder crack. Mm-hmm. I went. To, they they saw what they saw. What happened to Ray on that? Mm-hmm. And I went. I went to do thunder crack and I got out in the cruxes, really in the first fifteen or eighteen feet. And I looked at him and I said, "Who's doing this?" And they said, "They're all like this. <laughs> They're all peeking out like, like little mice, you know." with a hawk they're going to pounce on or something. <laughs> <laughs> they're, po- they're poking out of the burrow, looking at me, and, uh, and I said, who's going to do this? And they said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going out there. and then I'm, I'm not going out there. And so I, I down climbed the, into the middle of the crux and just kicked this seven or eight stopper out, uh, hex out, excuse me, and then soloed the first free ascent to the top, you know. So... That's kind of how it was every day. It was mm-hmm. a, every every day was in a little mini epic right, of right. some kind. Because, so, <laughs> so, like I
2: said, so my attempt on your roots probably was very similar to this. <laughs> yeah, it probably sounds just about right. the same, <laughs> a minus the soloing. But yeah, no, because it's actually um, that picture of Thundercrack was awesome because I have the exact same one of me, and uh, I even have a headband on and long hair. But uh, in and that was the route, actually, I remember that, that convinced me uh, when I got back to camp. I was like, that was amazing. And, I, and it was quite a, a, a leap for me, leading-wise. Yep. And then that, that's when I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do all these routes, you know. Yeah. And so that's awesome. And that picture was awesome, too. Cause it, it, you know, and that, the thing about Rapalys is that, you know, what's so amazing is you're, you're cragging. You're doing these one- and two-pitch routes off of these gullies, but you still... That one in particular, you step out. You're always like stepping over these voids. Yeah. You know, as yeah, you turn yeah. a corner, and then that's where the 300 foot cliff is, and, Man, and it's pretty special. Yeah, it's in a, it's you know, it's one of the great crags of the world, and with, without a doubt. So, but yeah, that must. I mean, day after, I can only imagine day after day, everybody's like hiding in the gums. You know, when you're walking <laughs> well, through. Well, camp. Look, I, I was, I was t- telling somebody the other day. You know,
1: uh, I had this my girlfriend, Kim, um, and uh, <laughs> I got up one morning, I was just fidgeting, you know, in the in sleeping bag, and mm-hmm. I, I went off and did this route, um, the solo of this route, Euripides, and um, we were in this pavilion kind of underneath this, you know, this picnic table, and uh, these uh, guys from South Australia are there, and they go, you guys, you guys, just, Henry Blatman, you just soloed Euripides. In like all eight minutes all eight minutes man
0: <laughs>
1: and uh i was pretending i was asleep and kim wakes up and she's giggling and i could hear it but i didn't want to let on that i was you know i wasn't asleep and she puts her hand over on my mouth and she says hey they think you just sold this climb and uh sitting there and they're telling the story and they're going on and on and embellishing it and everything and i said all of a sudden i start giggling and she's on top of me and she looks at me and she says you didn't did you i said yeah i did (laughs) (laughs) she said you left me and went climbing already i said yeah i said but that's okay, I'm here now. Right. And he started laughing, you know, we're laughing and laughing and laughing. And uh, the guys heard us laughing. And uh, they came over and he said, What are you doing here? I said, What do you mean? I said, I'm having rest. <laughs> <laughs> and so so they invited me to um they invited me to South Australia. And I had no plan. I mean I yeah. didn't have any plan. Right. For Forty-two days I had no plan. My plan was to go to Queensland to meet my friend Rick White. And then somehow end up in Sydney to climb with my guy, friend Keith Bell that I did the nose with, and that was it. Mm -hmm. So I was just, so I gotta, I can't can't go right now, but if I could buy a ticket, I gotta go to Tasmania for a week. So I'll, 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 uh, and they organized the lecture and I got back to Melbourne and flew over to South Australia. And um, we went out to this kind of cool crag and I did two new routes there and then did the lecture. And then we drove six hours north into the olgas and, and ended up camping in the middle of the australian desert the most beautiful sky and the reddest rock and then they did like two or three routes there spent a night there did a route real early in the morning drove back to adelaide did another climb and got on another plane you know to the next place mm-hmm. back to actually went back to arapolis that that after that but
2: that's what it was like
1: you know it was just like frenetic and it mm-hmm. was like a it was like people people would quit work or get off the of, off of work to take me around so it was non-stop. And these places are not that easy to get to. They're mm-hmm. four and five hour drives. Sure, no, it's a huge country. It's a huge yeah, country. Yeah, it's like being out here in the west in I mean, the or whatever. Yeah, I mean, this is like traveling from from uh, Portland, Maine. What I was doing was traveling from like Portland, Maine to four or five stops to Miami as far west as Houston, as far north as, say, Chicago and back and forth in between. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it would be like if you hit the 22 best crags uh, east of the, of the Mississippi. Right, right, yeah. That's what it was like. And
2: I was, you know, I was on fire. Yeah, you clearly were. <laughs> 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 well, it's funny because I have another parallel is that that was one of my first international trips as a climber, where I, where I also dropped in and, and uh, it was pre-internet, and uh, so a little more like what you were dealing with. And I just went to a climbing shop I was in Sydney because I climbed in Blueies first, yeah. and just said, "Okay, where should I go to meet other climbers?" And they told me I didn't have it planned ahead or anything like yeah. that. But also, it was the time where I was in Arapolis and I was climbing every day because I was on. I just like you. I mean, I've only I'm only here for two months. Like yeah. I got to climb, but unlike you, I augured in. Like I basically got to this point where I was falling off five nines and five eights, and every day was a little closer to the bottom and. And finally in that case these sport climbing guys I was sitting there lamenting how like I couldn't I was like something's wrong with me I've got some sort of virus or something <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they said well how, how many days do you climb in a row and I'm like I don't know 12 14, 16 I I, I don't know I mean, they're like, you, you need to rest, mate. You know, like you need to stop for just a couple days, maybe. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't have the reserves you did, but I tried. I did yeah. my best. So. Yeah, yeah. But I learned what a rest day was, which is, I think, something that was probably never in your vocabulary. No, no, no. I
1: said that people told me I should have a rest day in 1973 was when I was in the valley, and I was thinking maybe in 1979 I'll have a rest day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, it was was interesting. So in line with with what came next, I actually did want to ask you a little bit about Dresden, Mm because that seemed to be uh, a really pivotal moment for your style. Um, And I think a lot of people who know your career associate um, style with your climbing, like Mm -hmm. the way in which you were climbing was extremely important. Um, You just mentioned the grade didn't matter all that much, but obviously the style, was a big part of what you, you, the way you approach climbing. So you ended up going to Dresden pre... I mean, this was back when it was East Germany, behind the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us about how that little trip came about? Yeah, well, I went twice, okay. both in 76 and
1: 79. And um, I read this article in Ascent. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, one of my climbing partners, Steve Wunsch, was really into it. And he was really into style and really an amazing climber. He did the first ascent of Psycho Roof and Boulder and stuff. I mean, he's really one of the unsung, most amazing
2: rock climbers ever in America. He's not unsung in my book. Oh, yeah, he's amazing. Steve Wunsch. Climb, my favorite book in Colorado, all over that book. Those guys were real instrumental and sort of helping to find these styles in the States in, in yeah. terms of free climbing and, and how to go about doing it. So yeah. I think he's the highest performing, for his body,
1: he's the highest performing climber then, that we ever saw in mm-hmm. America, because he was not particularly physically amazing in mm-hmm. any, with finger strength or arms or legs or anything, anything. But he was so I'm sure he'll be happy to hear you say oh, that. Oh yeah, he would he he's um he, he works on Wall Street now. Right he, yeah, he looks like he's very and he has a cute little laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, he would totally agree with me. He knows I'm I'd never say something behind somebody's back. I right wouldn't say other. to their face, you All know. Right. But uh anyway he was interested in it in and my really good friend Rick Hatch who I was climbing a lot with, he we were over there climbing and he was on, he was in, in to go, but um <clears throat> So that was how it got hatched, and we met. We went to meet Fritz Wiesner, who was a pioneer there in the 20s. And um, I didn't really know much about it. I, like everywhere I've gone, I have, I'm not a guy that likes to know a lot about mm-hmm. something before <clears throat> before I go. I think it's nicer to feel the the rawness and the awe that you feel instead of the awe from what you've read and. You know i don't need to know that that michelangelo uh painted the sistine chapel in x number of days or Mm -hmm. with x number of people i just need to go see it sure and see the awe you know what he accomplished and then i can study the parts of it that are interesting to me Mm -hmm. and that to me is what like a climbing trip is about so we just went and we met fritz and uh It was very interesting. We climbed originally. We climbed with a guy named Herbert Richter, who was the pioneer before Bernd Arnold, and uh, he was a very funny guy. And we went out every day, and um, we had to. The thing is, is that we had to climb hard because they had a hundred routes that that, that, that the called the master routes. Um, They were the hundred hardest routes, and. We ended up doing, like, uh, you know, a couple in the top seven, top five or seven. And then the majority of them would have been maybe the 20s and 30s hardest. But we started out doing things um, that were around 90th in difficulty, Mm -hmm. 80 and 90 in difficulty. They were so unprotected and so scary. We just had to get climbing hard. So it was either climb hard and have fairly good protection, or climb old classics and be soloing 5.9, done in mm-hmm. 19.7. Right. You know, that's not, that's not really a great choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, you know, we, we tried everything. We climbed, the, we climbed the really steep friction. I mean, steep friction there is like 80 degrees, mm-hmm. you know, slopey pads like you find in Gritstone, or <coughs> wide cracks, um, you know, finger and hand cracks and jamming knots, and then the, the wall climbs with all kinds of pockets and stuff. And the, every, each one of them is different because you you have to, on the wide cracks, you're not going to get gear. Um, you're, you're looking for little little places where you might get a sling mm-hmm. around a horn or through a, a hole or something. And the friction roots, there's no gear. Right. So you're going from ring to ring, 80, 100-foot runouts, and 5'9", five,
2: 5'10". F10B friction. Um, I mean, it's just really mind blowing stuff. Well, and to frame this, it's just, I mean, not everyone knows about Dresden, but this is the place, the famous place with the knotted slings. Yeah. And no steel protection other than belay um, pitons, drilled pitons for yeah. belays. Uh, so that's, and that's the, and it's also the the famous barefoot climbing yeah. land. So, yeah. You put it, and that that phrase do is the when in Rome, do as the Romans do, yeah. so you were someone who was going to come in and ad- adapt and and do all these things the way that that they 're done in the area yeah, the one thing we
1: did in hindsight we shouldn 't have done is we used chalk, and then, when I went back in seventy nine they had decided they weren 't burnt started using chalk actually mm-hmm. but um, they didn 't want to see the white on on the rock, sure, and they banned it in um I think they banned it in '77 or '78. So when I went back, I didn't use chalk, and uh, which I I kind of hate that because I my hands do perspire, uh-huh. and especially in Dresden when you fear somehow yeah. makes the <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just a sudden, dripping all out of a sudden down. gooey driplets are coming right. off your fingertips. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, what is this. But um, yeah. It, to me that was really important it wasn't really that important to climb these roots barefoot mm-hmm. um but i was really i was really stuck struck for instance in burnt to watch baron climb these corners barn arnold they're 90 degree corners and he just pads up them like like a brick corner in a building mm-hmm. you know just like that and i couldn't really I couldn't really understand it. I mean, it was just like a fly or a gecko walking up a wall. It was like watching Tommy last night, you know, on on the uh, Mescalito, you know, trying to do these amazing scumming into these flared, you know, corners and stuff. And um, I I just really couldn't get it. So I I said, I have to try barefoot. And um, maybe it's the angulation of the feet or that you get more foot pad of your foot on the wall or something and yeah in fact that that's exactly what it is it's Mm -hmm. um i don't know that i could actually have climbed a couple of the things i did with shoes i really don't so i started that i've always maintained that if you if you try new things that are well adapted in another area then you're going to learn something about your own climbing Mm -hmm. and so i i really pursued barefoot climbing for a few years and the reason is is because um you can really rest a lot differently Um, you. I never use sticky rubber. I never owned a pair of five ten shoes. I'm I'm climbing on rubber right now, on my shoes. That's from 1987. So, I was very. I was always very precise edging, with Mm -hmm. my footwork. You know, most of my roots that I did in, in Australia were done in boots, right, with heels and cleats. They weren't done with EBS and stuff like that. So. I was learning a lot about f- foot technique, and I was using techniques with bare feet that I couldn't use with my boots. And, it, and right at this time, I was moving over to EBs, so I was going into—I climbed in EBs in in Yosemite in '73 and stuff. But I had quite a range of these between EBs and Chinnar shoes. I had a a range of um, you know of footwear that I would kind of use or. Adapt for whether I was going in the mountains or going on really thin edging climbs and stuff like that. And when I went to bare feet, I could really see the advantages of it. And then I got determined that, you know, if I could climb overhanging stuff barefoot, I didn't have that extra weight on my sure. feet. And I got really big lower legs. I mean, I have big calves and stuff. So I just was like discovering things that I mean, it, it's not really worth talking about because I had to do what I had to do to mm-hmm. adapt for my body. Right. And, and so, in the end, at the end of the day, I had a, I had a kit that's it's, it's really about the size of a football. Seriously, it's all my gear, all my nuts, carabiners, quick draws, my swami belt, my chalk bag, in shoes or no shoes, fits into th- something about the size of a football. And that's why I got to climb all over the world, because I always went, I always had it in my carry-on wherever mm-hmm. I went—a pair of shorts or a pair of long pants
2: and a crappy shirt and a hat. Yeah,
1: and that was it. I had it. And and all the going. photos
2: from Australia last night—you had that one shirt on that was <laughs> like slowly falling apart over this over the shots. Yeah, but falling, anyway, It was falling, yeah. falling off <laughs> of me. And um, so anyway,
1: this the barefoot thing was important. For learning about technique but then it became even more important as I went on and climbing because I get to strip more and more and more equipment away mm-hmm. from um, my gear rack and you know I still have I still have the big heavy fat carabiners that I used back in the 70s I still they're still on my rack that's what I climb with I don't like mm-hmm. these little micro things and stuff and my rack weighs less than most people's racks right you know so I was really I had a lot of advantages that i wasn't talking about because i I was kind of arrogant i think at, at certain points um in seventy two three four I got a little bit more mellow seventy five onward but people were interested in things, and I would talk to them about them, but they weren't interested in these things i 'm talking about now, you mm-hmm. know like the rack and the rack weight and shoes versus no shoes and stuff. They were just simply amazed that I could climb something barefoot. Um, but they weren't going to do it. So it's right. fine. But, you know, it wasn't an ethical thing. It wasn't a style thing. It was just something that I decided to do. Right? It's like I wear i wear a swami belt. I don't wear a harness. I've never worn a harness. Still? Yeah, still. Okay. What, what, so what? There's nothing to talk about. You know, I mean, I, I would be stupid if I was climbing 513 and swinging off a Huge overhanging roof or wall, and I'd be stupid if I was going to be doing really risky things in, in on a big wall now um, and take a fall and you know be knocked out or something like that, and then hang from the thing three thousand feet off the ground. It'd be stupid, but I'm not doing that. I mean, I did the nose in the Swami belt. It was fine. Um, I've taken long falls, forty-five foot falls. It's fine, but you know I was trying to explain it to somebody last night, and, and uh, if you if you're out. 70 feet, and you've got six or eight pieces a year in, and you take a 40-footer, you don't even feel it. What you really have to worry about is if you get knocked out or something. Mm-hmm. And, and you're hanging upside and you're, down. You're hanging upside right. down. And, but it's not something that you feel that you f- feel bad about. I mean, in, maybe in 10 years um, I'll, I can break a rib or something because my bones are getting delicate or something. I don't know. Right. But it's not something to talk about. So I was doing all of these things, mm-hmm individually like the small rack and and um, going to barefoot and and using a Swami belt and and in down climbing um, you know instead of grabbing or lowering off and I was doing all these things and independent of, of, of each other they're not they're not really noteworthy mm-hmm. but they were giving me a huge advantage and mm-hmm. I and I and I really couldn't explain that probably to people until five or six years later until 79 or 80 or 82 so there really wasn't anything to share it's just that my style is for me it's not to tell somebody else that it's better and you should do this Mm -hmm. it's for me and the aggregate um, total of all the little things that i developed over time is is eventually what allowed me I mean, the, in, when I turned 50, I climbed in 11 countries. I climbed in Switzerland three different times. Italy two different times. And 11 countries. Separate mm-hmm. of that. Right. You know? You just know. And So right. you say you have these options available. That's how I could climb all the time. All the time, everywhere. Never, I never had a bad day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had rainy days and I climbed in the rain. But, you know, that's another thing. I climbed in the rain. That's how I started solo climbing, was in the rain. Seriously, in the Schwandos because I wanted to go climbing. I didn't drive four hours to sit around and drink and be hungover for the weekend. I went there to climb. And if my partners didn't want to climb, I was going to climb. And normally, by 8 o'clock in the morning, I'd already done 8 to 10 routes. (laughs) And so I was warmed up. I was ready to go. You know, unfortunately, I had to do a couple more warm-ups because they couldn't jump on 510 Mm -hmm. right, right straight away. They didn't want to. I don't blame them. And I'd have these incredible days. And at the end of the day, they'd all be done at four o'clock and I said well I'll see you at the pub in two or three hours and they either hook up for another climb or do another two or three but it was like it was like that was three days of climbing and when somebody would say well what's Henry up, you know off doing they'd they'd say something like oh he was at something at Mohawk and somebody else said no he didn't he was at such and such and then somebody else would say no he was over here and in fact I was at all the places you know which is like a three and a half mile walk mm-hmm. between these various places and cliffs and s- but it was just people went to the mccarthy wall for the day they didn't go to the mccarthy wall and uh, uh two miles away to mohawk mm-hmm. you know and i didn't i didn't do it to make a statement i did it because I, I had a friend that wanted to do something over at mohawk or that was our objective and so we did it sure but i didn't want to you know start climbing at 11 o'clock so I, I climbed until 8, met them, and walked over there. And then we started climbing at 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. you know. And then we got back and, you know, was, there's was still like an hour and a half of daylight left. So I go do something else real quick and then go down to the pub. And then we party until 2 in the morning and do it all over the next day again and again and again. And I just, you know, I mean, if you're... That was like a nuclear power plant. You know, the more energy that you have, the more energy that you use, the or more energy you, you build. Right. You know, you a self-perpetuating energy machine. And as soon as I stop, I want and obviously I'd stop, I'd hit the wall, you know, and I'd be down for like two or three days. But that didn't happen really until 79 or 80. It mm-hmm. really it happened to me climbing every day really affected me when I got into business. And when I started working hard all the time, I found that getting up and climbing. I used to climb every day. At the shows, trade shows in Vegas, mm-hmm. every day I go out at 4 a.m. and I climb until six or seven in the morning, and then go in. and My first appointment was eight, eight thirty, nine o'clock. Those, that was the time, that was the point in time in my life where, when I had too much, I hit the wall and I was like out mm-hmm. for like two or three days, just watching TV and hanging out. But if I had been all that time working at those trade shows or driving around repping Patagonia if that same time had been spent climbing never would have stopped never would have stopped yeah it's the it's the emotional stuff it's the relationship bullshit it's the it's the it's the work and all that kind of thing that that, um, those things that weigh on your mind that kind of it's like taking an SAT you've never been more exhausted than when you take an SAT so take an SAT every day and go climb right you're gonna get burned out totally but do away with the ACT or the SAT and just go climb every day. Mm-hmm. No, the perpet- perpetual energy machine. Nice. It's like a dam with water going from a dam through a turbine. Uh huh. And that's that's. I think that's why it happened to me. And I wasn't. I didn't ever. I never did drugs. I never did a drug in my whole life. Ever once. Not a toke. Not nothing. Ever once. I drink. I love to drink, but. But you know, my friends were into dope and everything else. I mean, that's just like a—that's something that you don't need. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, have it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have it. I didn't have it. Didn't. It never occurred to me. If I had had one, if I'd had one time where where you know alcohol was slowing me down, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been drinking. I wouldn't have done it because I wanted to do this other thing more. In fact, the alcohol turned out to be great for you know, meeting girls and dancing until two in the morning and keeping the energy machine going, you know, just when I was right. about, just when I was about to, you know, pass out at eight o'clock at night, that second pitcher of beer was perfect. Right. So it's like the third pitch of the day or whatever. Yeah, it yeah. you going again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it was just, uh, it was an amazing period, but we were talking about Dresden and, and, um, that whole thing with knotted slings, that, add, that, that whole thing added to my rack. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was telling um, a gal, Nancy, last night about it, because she's climbed over there. And, um, you know, we're talking about these slings, and I've used these slings, little tying a knot and jamming them in a desert crack to wrap off. And um, I've actually been able to put knots on the edges of things and wrap off of them and then flick the rope and pull the thing out from, you know, 150 feet below. Mm -hmm. And so there are these things that you learn Are really amazing and if you really if you really think about things like back then we were we had a a technique for wrapping off where we could if we had a 50 foot 150 foot rope we could wrap off 50 feet or you know 60 meter rope you'd wrap off one-third of that distance so you run the rope through wrap off and then the other end was tied to the sling and we pull the sling down well so what you know that doesn't really matter, okay? But what ma- it mattered to us because we didn't want to leave gear on the wall. Mm-hmm. We wanted the we wanted the wall to look nice. That's why we did. it. Mm-hmm. No other reason. So I don't want to. I don't need to really talk about that. Right. But you want to know what? That sure came in handy when I had to get down a four thousand foot face on Kilimanjaro, and we only
2: had like eight, ten pieces of gear. Uh huh. So you're wrapping down the space, flicking your flicking your anchors out. Well, no, I, <laughs> well, no, but
1: I was, but in, but if you come across, if you come, come across something where you can remove your sling and use it again. Sure, yeah, it's a oh, handy yeah. thing to it's have. It's a handy thing to have. Yeah, you know, you got, you can use that sling six times before you get to, you know, like my nuts. I had an argument with Martin Atkinson one time from um, Wild Country, and I said, you know, why don't you sell the nuts without slings in them? And they did, but they they weren't marketing them anymore. And he says, he, he just gave me a load of, he says, oh, that's a load of bollocks. And I said, no, I like to thread them with cord because I can use the cord to, to wrap off. As
2: well, right. And then I get the nut. So you're saying like just the head, just, just the, the head, head without yeah. the wire and the sling. Yeah. And then you can put a knotted sling in there and you've got something else. Yeah. Another piece.
1: Yeah. And you see all these people out there with all festooned with all this stuff, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if, you, if you're using Friends... Um that's that's cool, but if I use nuts, I've got my I've got my prussic knot on my on my nut. Sure. You know, and I have repel cord on those nuts mm-hmm. and everything else. So i g I'm using I can use my rack six ways to Sunday. Right. You know, if you if you if you're really invested in your kit, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. you're just a lot more comfortable in your own skin. So that's really what that's really what East Germany did for me, it opened my eyes to this whole new style. And so all of a sudden I had sling craft in addition to nut craft. Mm-hmm. And I had, I, I carry, you know, non-knotted slings, girth hitched on my shoulder thing now. And I can just pull it off and tie a knot and I can tie it so it's, it's 10 inches long mm-hmm. or 12 inches long or 2 feet long. Just real quick and bang, there's a runner, mm-hmm. self-made runner. And I can feed it through pitons if I'm running out of carabiners. I can use it for rappelling. I can, and right. it's just something I have now, and I've, I've never seen anybody else outside of Dresden or the Czech Republic, right, using this, using that. Just this little things, lots of little, lots and lots and lots of little things mm-hmm. that you pick up. So Dresden was huge, but the biggest thing I think about Dresden for me is that is the. Um, the two the two things were both related is human potential, and people excelling in a vacuum. Um, I think there's been a huge acceleration in in climbing um, uh, with people going to sport cracks. I mean, everybody moved to American Fork, then everybody moved to Rifle, everybody moved sure. to Smith Rock, everybody moved to the Red, or to the and go to Mecca and um, hang with the bros and and you know, I think standards go go crazy, and personal development is fantastic. But we weren't having that in the '70s. It wasn't it wasn't exploding like that, except maybe in um, the shwangunks and Boulder. Were the only two places where there were enough. There was a high enough density of Roger Briggs, Jim Erickson, uh, Duncan Ferguson, you know, people like that on the naked edge, and then us it was Wunsch, Bragg, Standard me, mm-hmm. a couple guys in the Schwangungs uh, so so that's cool but man when you go to a place and some guy was climbing six grades above everybody else isolated above everybody else in 1920 or 1950 or 1940 it's amazing I mean what was done you know Fritz Wiesner Ten days above twenty six thousand feet without oxygen in K two in in the nineteen thirties. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know? What the guys did on, on the West Ridge of Everest, you know, in tra- traversing the mountain, basically, Bishop and Unsold and all that. That was amazing. You know? Everything else since is crap. Right. Yeah. What the Polish climbers do. I mean what the Polish climbers, I mean these guys aren't climbing the, the eight thousand the the fourteen, eight thousand meter peak. They're doing them in winter. Mm-hmm. They're doing them solo. They're doing them solo in winter. They're doing them by new routes in winter. Mm-hmm. you know they're on and on and on. It just it, they did it, they did that exactly like I did. Mm-hmm. They just said, "I'm going to put a little twist in it. Sure. I'm going to put a little twist in it." And you know, and for them being at 60 below zero, at 27,000 feet on K2 in winter or on a pern or something, that was like going, that's like us going to the Caribbean.
2: You know, they were like escaping the, the iron. Sure. Curtain. That's always been the thing about that, that, those guys. Like, yeah. It was nicer there than home. Yeah, yeah, they loved it.
1: They loved it. Right. And and so I, I those are the 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 standout things. And that's what the Eastern that's what Eastern European bloc really mm-hmm. sh- showed me. And um I think that I think um Czech Republic is even scarier because right. the raucous more monolithic
2: and there's less holes sure. and stuff and it is fucking terrifying no stories abound <laughs> those guys just like slamming into the ground from way up and like oh. dusting themselves off and like alright let's try it again <laughs> oh, that, yeah so so the, that whole thing
1: uh, that showed me a lot about human spirit and about uh, I just I was you know always looking around the next corner thinking I'm gonna meet some person here mm-hmm. That is really unbelievable. Like Yuji Hir- Hirayama in Japan is is a standout, you know, from 15 years ago. Sure. When yeah. there was not, I mean, there wasn't this Dai Komodo bouldering phenomenon, things like that. He's a standout, and he's a standout. He's a stand-up guy, mm-hmm. and he's a standout in all of Japanese climbing. and Well, world climbing, really. In yeah, world yeah. climbing, yeah. And so it's just it's just uh it's fascinating to travel to places and and look at those routes from 70 years ago or 50 years ago or 30 years ago and and um, i think if anybody that's a sport climber here if they went and did these alpine sport routes like silbergeier right Pete camelander you know or, and and those routes that huber and uh stefan glovich have put up in austria and germany and stuff they're they're stout. They're mm-hmm. they're sixty, 70 foot runouts and mm-hmm. hard five twelve to get to five thirteen and sure. And um, it's it's really
2: it's cool. It's really cool. Well, you know, we I got just a couple more things for you, but you know, I, I think that um, you you keep saying like, oh yeah, this isn't worth talking about, but here we are talking about it. You know, there is this impression of you, I think, out there as like this real staunch conservative and And maybe, like you know the, the sort of grumpy the way it used to be guy, the great thing about talking to you this weekend is is I find that to be a wrong impression, mm-hmm. okay I mean you're talking here about the way you want to do things, not necessarily everybody needs to be wearing a Swami or not using friends or any any of these sorts of things. Um, what can you say in terms of who are the folks that? You know are impressing you, you mentioned Yuji, and, and and I bring this up only because the one thing that you mentioned in in your in your presentation was you know mentor's heroes, apprentice mm-hmm. was a was a theme you had you've become one of these heroes mm-hmm. you know to a certain generation and you know I don't know whether that makes you feel uncomfortable or not, but th- it's the truth you know mm-hmm. you started in this place where you you sort of worship these guys from the past mm-hmm. well, there's plenty of people that are like.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Henry, hot Henry Barber. I mean, I was one of them back in the day. So what do you see going on right now that, I mean, you're still connected with climbing, you're still paying attention, you know, who are the guys you see coming up that, that sort of make you go? Well, I, so still, the I still,
1: I mean, the people that I hold in highest regard now are, you know, guys like Roger Briggs, you know, that mm-hmm. are, I still get after it on 512 on, sure. on the Diamond. And he, you know, he just went and did this silver gyre, um in in the Radicon in Switzerland. Are you kidding me? No, no. He said, you know, he's, he, he did it. He did it like two years ago. I think he went with chip chase or somebody like that. And they knocked it off. I mean, he's, he's, I, 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 I don't know Roger very well. Right. And, uh, he, I, I hold him in very, very high regard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, any of these, um, these top, you know, Himalayan climbers that are kind of climbing in the vein that the, the, um, the Polish did, Mm -hmm. you know, the Jerry Kakushkas did. I'm definitely Hayden, young guys like Hayden Kennedy, you know, up and coming that are just, um, tagging it on, in every, on every aspect Mm -hmm. of the sport. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of generally more interested in people that are still climbing super hard and super well at, um, later ages. Mm hmm. Um, that's that's one thing that I look at Um, people that are uncompromising in their style that are willing to fail in front of a you know a a whole posse sure Um, people that are the permanent internet posse yeah yeah. people that are trying to um, you know trying to climb everything and love everything you know love the whole spectrum of mountaineering from bouldering to you know Himalayan alpine climbing and stuff um, short of going on big expeditions, those people really, really um, excite me. Guys like Hayden, and um, you know that I don't know. I don't know Kyle Dempster. I don't know. I know Jason Cruck a little, mm-hmm. and, but um, you know I think there's the certain people that you know totally blow me away, like Alex Honnold, um, Sonny Trotter. Um, I just like their demeanor. You know, I just. You know, you meet these people, and they're really down-to-earth people, and, and you wonder, um, you know, what makes them tick, and they're, mm-hmm. they're, far, they're far more generous to you, whether it's me, or whether it's a, a Gumby starting out, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a real gift, and I'm, I'm kind of of mind that the quieter the person is, the less they say about their accomplishments the more recognition they're going to get from me, because um, I, I just think that that's the strongest marketing. Mm-hmm. Is uh, I think saying too much about what you do is really a turn off. It's like a it's like a beautiful it's like a beautiful woman or a really handsome guy that the opposite sex is attracted to, and then they open their mouth and they haven't got a brain cell in between their ears. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not appealing. Like they're not attractive, and. Um, I I think those are some of the best examples I'm really pretty pretty astounded at these guys, all the guys in my valley you know, Janet Bergman Kevin Mahoney, North Conway yeah, Freddie Wilkinson, Jimmy Surrett Sarah Garlic, you know, all these guys you know, Ben Gilmore uh, you know, these are these are phenomenal climbers mm-hmm.
2: all of them, and they're quiet and they're they're really solid and everything. Well, with that in mind, I mean, you just spent an hour or more talking about yourself. I really appreciate it because, it, you know, with that in mind, you obviously uh, didn't mind at least giving me an hour of your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Is yeah. there anything else you want to say about your legacy? I think there's a lot of good things and uh,
1: I think there's a lot of misinformation about me, you know, because I haven't I haven't really um, written, you know, I haven't promoted, I haven't, what's been said about me has been said about me, I haven't Mm -hmm. said it about me, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's lots of things like like coming here and people think I'm a, a, you know, a rapid bolt chopper, you know, which I'm not, or, um, you know, I don't use friends, I think friends are brilliant, Right. you know, I think they're brilliant, I think you should use them, Um, like it's crazy not to use them, I just don't use them, you know, it's just stuff, it's just stuff like that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, what? it's the little it's the little pieces that make up a hole and i think you have to look at all the little pieces that make up a hole and and uh i think people there's too much anonymity today um too much spray without without enough fact um and i also think that there's just too much entitlement and i think people need to go out and invest in um you know climbing easier routes with their wife or their kid or Friend, or learning some history, or um, trying to some things that are—they're de- definitely going to humble them. Sure. And there's always improvement. And if you—you you can't be honest and kind of look into your your, um, you know, your style and how you're doing things climbing. You're probably not doing it somewhere else in your job or your marriage or something else. And that's the coolest thing about climbing is—is is that how you how you do it and how you live it is can be a direct re- reflection and an influence on your everyday so that's it that's it
2: awesome thanks a lot Henry. and i only told like 10 lies all right on. <laughs> well that's i've got an app on this phone so i'm going to be able to find them the lie detector the, app so the lie master yeah, yeah right <laughs> all right thanks again okay you're welcome Alright, thanks again to Henry Barber for sitting down. His time is valuable. He was helping to get out of there on the way to Denver, so I do appreciate it. Plus, that early wake-up was a little rough for both of us. Okay, I want to thank all of you guys for listening. I want to thank you all for spreading this thing word of mouth. It was, again, very humbling to meet so many listeners up in Lander. I also do want to point out that supporting my sponsors is supporting the show. So if you need some lawyering, give Dan a shout at climbing at gmail.com. If you need something caffeinated, shot almost directly into your veins. Get a hold of Jeff at defiantbean.com. Order some Defiant Bean coffee. If you need a rope? You need a rope. We're climbers. We need ropes. Buy a Maxim rope. And finally, if you need any other gear, you know Black Diamond makes good gear. So check it out. That's all you got to do. You can follow me at Facebook, on the Instagram, on the Twitter, Machine, all that sort of stuff. A normal cast. Just look it up. That's why I chose that name. I knew it wouldn't get lost in the internet. It's pretty easy to find. All right. Keep listening. Get out there. Don't forget to check your knot.
0: Hello, Brit. Speaking. Britt, it's Jermaine speaking. Hey, man. Where are you? You run away. No, I went home with a girl. What?
1: I think she might be Australian.
0: Are you sure she's Australian? She's Australian. She, she really likes Australia. Oh, you
2: gotta get out of there. Just get out of there. I'm, I'm,
0: I'm locked in. She's trapped me. I'm not surprised.